Welcome to World War I Centennial News. It's about World War I news 100 years ago this week, and it's about World War I now, news and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. World War I Centennial News is brought to you by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. Today is June 21, 2017, and I'm Teo Mayer, Chief Technologist for the World War I Centennial Commission and your host. We've gone back in time 100 years, and in mid-June 1917, one of the key events here in the United States is the passing of the Espionage Act. The law makes it a crime for any person to convey information intended to interfere with the U.S. Armed Forces' prosecution of the war effort. The convicted spy is subject to a fine of $10,000. Now, that's equivalent of about $200,000 in 2017, plus a prison sentence of up to 20 years. And within a year, the pendulum swings ever further into autocracy as the Espionage Act is reinforced by the Sedition Act of 1918. It imposes similarly harsh penalties on anyone found guilty of insulting or abusing the U.S. government, the flag, the Constitution, or the military, agitating against the production of necessary war materials, or advocating, teaching, or just defending any of these acts. Both pieces of legislation are aimed at socialists, pacifists, and other anti-war activists, and are used to punishing effect in the early years and those immediately following the war. It's a chilling attack on the First Amendment that seems incredibly strong and even excessive in today's terms. We'll be following this story and its consequences over the coming months. Links about the Espionage Act are in the podcast notes. Looking over at Europe, we have a running theme for this week 100 years ago, a theme that's very well set up by our first guest this week. We're joined by Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator for the Great War Project blog. Mike, where are the Americans? Indeed, where are the Americans? Everyone's asking this question. We might find out. And this is special to the Great War Project. At this moment in the war a century ago, the first significant contingent of American troops, some 14,000, reaches France. Their crossing the Atlantic was largely uneventful, according to historian Gary Mead, apart from a few submarine scares. The Americans are hardly battle-ready. According to historian Martin Gilbert, this was to have had no effect at all on the battlefield. The men had first to train and to be reinforced by colleagues. Reinforcements are not expected to arrive for three months. America was at war, Gilbert writes, but in France, her effort was necessarily focused on building up port and training facilities supply lines, and store depots. Some gaps were immediately evident. Gaps such as artillery men arriving without their guns. Many of those with their guns do not know what they look like and how to use them. Reports Gilbert, even their commander, General John J. Pershing, was shocked by the poor quality of his men. Pershing is nothing if not a great logistics man. His first priority, establishing a network of training schools for his new arrivals and initiating a vast apparatus of supply and preparation essential to ensure American participation in the front line. That participation was a long way away, observes Gilbert. The Americans had arrived, but the question, where are the Americans, was on everyone's lips. The answer is still some time away. There's also a fundamental question about whether the Americans are to remain as an independent force or to be amalgamated into French and British units. 
This proves to be a highly contentious matter, with Pershing insisting on keeping his men under his independent control, with the British and French arguing for amalgamation. Pershing had no intention of permitting any such amalgamation. The bitter clash over this issue further soured U.S. relations with Britain and France throughout the rest of the war. Write two other historians. Pershing and his staff thought amalgamation would disperse American strength. They also believed a separate American force would have a greater psychological impact on the battlefield against the Germans. Nevertheless, at this moment in the war 100 years ago, there was little to amalgamate, writes one soldier in his diary. It is too bad that our troops will have to train before going into the fight for so long a time. They can hardly be ready, even the first of them, before January 1918. Still, despite all the rancor and disagreement over the Americans' role, Meade writes that the greatest asset of this first wave of the American expeditionary force was its boisterous goodwill, invaluable in a country so devastated by the war. Time would improve their mettle and vastly extend their combat skill to a level almost matching their initial self-estimation. That's some of the stories from the Great War a century ago. Thank you, Mike. That was Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog. Let's continue to explore the question of America's preparation to enter the fray with some articles selected from The Official Bulletin, the government war gazette published by George Creel, America's propaganda chief, under the orders of President Wilson. We're pulling from Volume 1, Issues 33 to 38. We'll begin with a follow-up of last week's Liberty Loan Bond stories. By Saturday of this week, the tally is in. Dateline, Saturday, June 23rd. Headline, 3035226850 is subscribed to Liberty Loan. Success of this undertaking, says Secretary McAdoo, constitutes an eloquent reply to enemies who claimed Heart of America was not in the war. That's probably quite true. In the propaganda war, the fact that the Liberty Bond program raises 50% more than was offered is sure to be unnerving to the Germans, whose intelligence tells them that America is not enthusiastic or prepared to enter the war. With the ramp-up funding for America's war effort off and running, the government is stimulated into bold thinking. Dateline, Monday, June 18, 1917. Headline, Great U.S. War Fleet Urged by Secretary Baker May Turn Tide of War for Her Allies. In the article, Secretary of War Baker states, We can train thousands of aviators and build thousands of machines without interfering in the slightest with the plans for building up our armies or for supplying the Allies with food and munitions. To train and equip our armies and send them abroad will take time. However, in the meantime, we can be devoted to this most important service with vast quantities of productive machinery and skilled labor. Dateline, Friday, June 22, 1917. Headline, U.S. Aircraft Board Plans to Clear Air of German Flyers. In the story, Howard Coffin, the chairman of the Aircraft Production Board, comments on a report that Germany plans to bring 3,500 new airplanes into the fighting line in the spring of 1918. Coffin believes that the report is probably accurate, going on to state that 3,500 planes next spring might well prove discouraging to the Allies. The French and the British alone might, maybe, hold their own against Germany's output. 
Coffin goes on to state, Pitted against America's added resources, properly organized, the situation immediately changes. No matter what desperate effort she makes, it will be physically impossible for Germany to increase her present rate of output to any dangerous extent. If we can carry through our program to produce the thousands of machines planned, the permanent supremacy of the Allies in the air is assured. Dateline, Friday, June 22, 1917. Headline, Contract for New Flying Fields in Illinois Awarded. The story reads, The Signal Corps today announces the letting of the contract for the fourth new government flying field to be built in Belleville, Illinois, 23 miles from East St. Louis. It will be a standard two-squadron field accommodating 300 student flyers with the requisite number of officers, instructors, mechanics, and enlisted men, and provide hangars for 72 training planes. Construction of the buildings and the preparation of the field will begin immediately. And that's just focusing on a small slice of the effort, the air war. We didn't even touch on the 16 major army training camps, or cantonments, that are also being built. One article explains... It's like building a city with a population of 40,000 from the ground up in mere weeks. Meanwhile, there is the production of trucks, food, munitions, draft animals, lumber, clothing, shipping, and internal infrastructure. This is creating a challenge and an economic boom unlike anything the country has ever experienced. If you're interested in logistics... Defined as the detailed coordination of a complex operation involving many people, facilities, or supplies, you can follow one of history's greatest logistics efforts by browsing the daily issues of the official bulletin at www.cc.org bulletin, all lowercase. Explore, exploit, and be amazed as you see how the U.S. gears up to enter the war that changed the world. For our Great War in the Sky segment, we're going back to the fighting front. This week, a hundred years ago, introduces, actually formalizes, a new German air strategy. Early in 1917, it becomes apparent to the German high command that they will always be outnumbered in air operations over the Western Front. The average Jagdstaffen, or German fighter squadron, could only muster six to eight aircraft in total for a patrol, and would often face one Allied formation after another. In order to maintain some impact and local command of the air, the German fighter wings began unofficially at first to fly in larger composite groups. That's the basis for a new concept in German air strategy. This week, 100 years ago, Germany's Army Air Force brings together four fighter squadrons, JASTA 4, 6, 10, and 11, to form Germany's Jagdgeschwader 1, or better known as JD-1, their first fighter wing. Manfred von Richthofen, the Red Baron, is promoted from commanding officer of JASTA 11 to the commander of JD-1. This unit becomes known as the Flying Circus, thanks to the colorful paint schemes of its aircraft. It's also called Richthofen Circus, and some claim it's so named because the entire wing moves from place to place for its operations like a traveling circus. We put a link in the podcast notes that leads to pictures of this colorful German flying force that came together 100 years ago this week in the Great War in the Sky. If you're into the air war, 
we invite you to explore former fighter pilot and author R.G. Head's detailed timeline of the War in the Sky by visiting www.cc.org slash war in the sky, all lowercase. And if you're into learning more about World War I by watching videos, go visit our friends at the Great War Channel on YouTube. This week's new episodes cover a variety of subjects, including Italian Mountain Warfare, the U.S. Espionage Act, Ottoman soldiers in Europe, naval tactics, and officer POWs. The link is in the podcast notes, or search The Great War on YouTube. So, where are the Americans? We're going to close out World War I 100 years ago this week with the storyteller and the historian. Richard Rubin and Jonathan Bratton are going to wrap up that question for us. Greetings. This is Richard Rubin, storyteller, the author of The Last of the Doughboys, and back over there. And this is Jonathan Bratton, historian. On June 13, 1917, the first troops from the American Expeditionary Forces arrived in France for World War I. The party was small, made up of Commanding General John J. Pershing and his staff. If the French were disappointed that the first American landing was not a large one, their hopes were lifted 13 days later on June 26th, when over 14,000 United States troops debarked at Saint-Nazaire. And Jonathan, as you may remember from The Last of the Doughboys, I actually was fortunate enough to interview one of those 14,000 American troops, a 19-year-old Eugene Lee from Syracuse, New York, uh, who was serving with the 5th Marines. He had just enlisted uh, back in April, uh, a couple months short of his high school graduation, because he really wanted to get into the action. And it's interesting to think what those first troops really witnessed when they arrived, because this is the first time that we're taking an expeditionary force of U.S. troops and actually putting them in Europe, um, as opposed to you know some of their former deployments, such as uh, the Philippines or Haiti. So this is really a huge commitment for the U.S. And if you think about it, it's the first time in all of human history when an army from the New World went over to fight in the old world. Um, and I think the significance of that was not lost on anyone at the time. You know, the French um, were desperate for Americans to start showing up in France and fighting the war. When America first entered the war in April of 1917, just a couple of months earlier, um, Americans had assumed that their primary contribution in that war would be naval, which is something I had never realized until I interviewed 106-year-old J. Lawrence Moffat, who had enlisted in the Connecticut National Guard, and he told me that his mother was relieved that he had enlisted in the Army because everyone assumed it would be a naval war. And then at the end of April, you have uh, Papa Joffre, the top of French general, coming over uh, to Washington with a British counterpart and telling the Americans, oh no, we don't need your ships. What we need are warm bodies in the trenches. And that's really where the Americans suddenly realized what this war was going to mean. Uh, and that's, there was a lot of doubt at first about could we raise enough troops in time. And so this is where you get these huge, massive recruiting drives uh, to raise this army that really we hadn't seen since the Civil War. Um, there had been no massive American field army put together um, for such a conflict. Uh, the Spanish-American War was really just uh, a shadow of, of what would happen in World War I with massive mobilization camps. Uh, the, 
that really just harkened back to the huge mobilizations of, of the, when the country was in conflict with itself. So it's really just a uh, unprecedented time in America's history. You know, in a lot of ways, um, the fact that the Spanish-American War was the previous experience of war for the United States really deserved this country and its fighting men, because by comparison, that war was really a romp. It, it was it was mainly fought against disease rather than bullets. I mean, it was over in a matter of months, but the majority of, of casualties came from from disease. So the American army had no real experience in fighting a modern war uh, and were really completely out of their depth with what to expect. They had to completely revise their staff system, revise their entire table of organization for how the army would be set up to fight. I mean, they, they really invented themselves uh, as they first set ground on France. The United States was in the war for 19 months before the armistice, and I think it's safe to say that they didn't have all that stuff figured out by the time the war ended on November the 11th, 1918. No, not at all. But I, I think the, the key point is that even with these green soldiers showing up for the French, seeing that influx of new blood um, after years of just absolute carnage and seeing their own forces... Um, just bled dry and offensive after offensive. And suddenly you see these, these young, energetic U.S. troops, many of them having just joined. It had to have been kind of a shock to them to, to see such a thing after uh, nearly four years of conflict up at that point. Well, if you think about it, uh, those first Americans arrive only six months after the end of the Battle of Verdun, Ten and a half months, in which the objective, uh, for the Germans at least, was to, as they put it, bleed France white. And they very nearly succeeded. And so this was a desperately needed infusion. And I think it's really impossible for us to overstate the effect that that had on French morale, and also, frankly, uh, the effect it would have had on German morale from the time those first American troops showed up on French soil. Um, the clock was ticking for the uh, German Empire, and they knew it. That was the storyteller Richard Rubin and the historian Jonathan Bratton talking about the arrival of the U.S. troops in Europe. We put links to their websites in the podcast notes. We've moved forward into the present with World War I Centennial News Now, news about the centennial and the commemoration. We'll start with some news from the World War I Centennial Commission and the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials program. This initiative is a $200,000 matching grant challenge to rescue ailing World War I memorials, and the deadline for grant applications was last week. We received a number of requests from potential participants for a short extension because some projects just needed a few more days to pull all the pieces together. The projects can involve many parties, including city and county bureaus, American Legion posts, VFW posts, DAR chapters, local historical societies and boards, and more. So, in a meeting of the program's executive committee this Monday, we decided to extend the submission deadline until midnight July 10th. Also, that means that anyone who already submitted their application can update any files they submitted by simply contacting the program management and requesting that their submission be made editable. All of this is available at www.cc.org slash 100 memorials. 
Cortland Jindra has been working on a 100 Cities, 100 Memorials project in Los Angeles, the Victory Memorial Grove project near Dodger Stadium. Welcome, Cortland. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me on, Theo. Cortland, really briefly, can you give us an overview of the project? Yeah, I'll give you some history real fast. In 1920, the city of Los Angeles established uh, Victory Memorial Grove, is this park within a park for families to purchase like memorial trees, remember loved ones they lost in the war. In 1921, four chapters of the uh, Daughters of the American Revolution that were based in Southern California, they dedicate a monument that recognized all the family members of the state of California Daughters of the American Revolution that fell in the war. And, you know, because of this, they are not by any stretch just from Los Angeles. They're from every corner of the state. There's other individuals even from out of state, like Rhode Island and Pennsylvania. And um, there's one gentleman even from Great Britain that served in the Naval Battle of Jutland that's recorded on the monument. Anyway, I first came across this story when I was seeking out memorials in the L.A. area. And I figured this was one I could actually save. You know, it's covered with layers of graffiti and it was more or less forgotten, and I got my mom, um, Kimberly Jindra, who's an active member of the Los Angeles Associate Chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution. Um, she was my in there, and then Hollywood Post 43 of the American Legion came on board, and one of their members, um, Lester Probst, reached out to me to see what they could do to participate um, in the centennial, and um, just sort of took off. Cortland, um, a, a few weeks ago, you guys had a big cleanup effort and brought a bunch of the stakeholders together for some hands-on time. Tell us about that. Yeah, um, it was a cleanup and planning day because the site was uh, mostly filled with like dead weeds and stuff. The Recreation and Parks Department cleared away some of that, and then the volunteers got there. And um, through the help of my mom and Lester, we had quite a few groups participate, you know, like Mission Continues. It's a vet group that does service events like this. Uh, we got the Recreation Parks folks, like I said, Councilman Mitchell Farrell's office, the City Councilman Mitchell Farrell's office, Disney Salutes, which is a group within Disney made up of volunteers uh, that do veterans things. Um, I think they're all veterans, actually. I got neighborhood residents involved, a few of them. And obviously, the two big groups around the monument, which Daughters of the American Revolution and the Legion. We probably about 30 or 40 volunteers cleaned up the site right around the monument. The park itself is a little bit too big to do the whole thing, at least initially, about three or four acres. You know, but we hope to focus on more and more of the park as the years go forward and try to reclaim more and more of it. Most of the people seem pleased with the event, got a lot of good feedback. We're obviously expecting to try to do more in the fall when plants have a better success rate of survival. So we're probably going to have to try to have a fall planting day, maybe around Veterans Day, and try to have an event around that. Well, Cortland, one of the ideas of the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials program is to create community awareness, create awareness about World War I. And it looks like what you're doing is you're using the project for exactly as it's intended to do. I saw some email traffic about this between and among some of the volunteers who joined that, and I think it was a big success. You also had another event. You had a rededication ceremony on Flag Day. Tell us about that. Yeah, it, we had a really good turnout, actually. Um, it was 96 years the day of the original dedication day in uh, 1921. They dedicated on uh, Flag Day of, you know, 1921. Um, and I'd hired a local uh, conservation agency, Rosa Lounge and Associates, to rework the monument. It was covered with some over 40 layers of paint and graffiti. They had to do two treatments on it, and each treatment took off 20 layers. And even after two treatments, they still had to do like a, a power wash. So it's probably been 45, 46 layers of paint they had to take off. 
Uh, the monument looks fantastic now. Probably hasn't looked that good in 90 some odd years. We had a good turnout. We found a copy of a book with all the original speeches from the 1921 ceremony from the Sons of the Revolution Museum in Glendale, California. And uh, through that, we tried to pattern the ceremony and program as best we could. And back in April, I had coordinated an event at the uh, L.A. Memorial Coliseum for the centennial of the entry of the U.S. into the war. And there I met Consul General Henri Vantaheim of Belgium, and he also came to the Victory Memorial Grove event and spoke, so that was really wonderful. Other groups we had there, uh, the LAPD Honor Guard, we had a barbershop chorus, we had a uh, reading of the roll call of names. Uh, with little bios on all of them because we had found little bios, a few shortened version of those. And uh, we got Veterans of Television and Film, which is a group of actors who serve in the military, um, as well as legionnaires and just random people. We could get to, to, to read them. So each name was read and flowers replaced the monument. And we had a wreath and taps at the conclusion. And I think it really, really went well. Um, I wish I could restore some other memorials in town too, but I think I'm going to go into semi-retirement after this. <laughs> well, thank you, Cortland. Actually, uh, everything that you're doing is like a poster child project for 100 Cities, 100 Memorials. Really want to thank you. Thank you. That was Cortland Jindra, a citizen historian, a longtime World War I commemoration advocate, and importantly, the co-director of the managing board for the California World War I Centennial Commission. Learn all about the program and sign up for the project blog to stay updated on the news and events for the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Project at www.cc.org slash 100 Memorials. From the U.S. National World War I Centennial Events Register at www.cc.org slash events, here is our upcoming event pick of the week. Families on the World War I Homefront is a tour that's offered at the Charles A. Lindbergh Historic Site in Little Falls, Minnesota. It's being held every other Saturday beginning in July and ending in September. Historical reenactors portraying the Lindbergh family and neighbors create the tour providing insights into the daily lives of Minnesotans at home during World War I. Visitors will hear inside stories about farming for the war effort, They'll assist a Red Cross volunteer and learn about the ways Minnesotan life changed during that period. Check out the U.S. National World War I Centennial Events Register for things happening in your area. And while you're there, you'll find a big red button so you can submit your own upcoming events, making them part of the National Archival Record of the World War I Centennial. Go to www.cc.org events or follow the link in the podcast notes. If you happen to be in Paris this coming week, we invite you to join the American Battlefield Monuments Commission at the Cemetery de Picpus for a ceremony commemorating General John J. Pershing's visit to the gravesite of the Marquis de Lafayette. The visit was profound a hundred years ago as it honored the deep ties between the two nations. Lafayette, you may remember, was a key connection with France during the Revolutionary War against the British. As Pershing came to the resting site of the French general, it is said that he announced, Lafayette, we are here. But it turns out that that's not actually true. On the occasion, Pershing only made some brief introductory remarks. It was the general's designated order, Colonel C.E. Stanton, who spoke. Quote, 
What we have of blood and treasure are yours, Stanton intoned. In the presence of the illustrious dead, we pledge our hearts and our honor in carrying the war to a successful conclusion. And then the final line of his speech went, Lafayette, we are here. This is from the pages of Blackjack, The Life and Times of John J. Pershing by Frank E. Van Diver. Back to the event. Representatives of the ABMC, the French government, and the American government will lay a wreath at Lafayette's grave in recognition of both Pershing's visit in 1917 and the Marquis's own work in cementing the relationship between the two nations from the 1770s to his death in 1834. A few weeks ago, we were joined by Dr. Kathy Gorn, Executive Director of National History Day, who introduced us to their amazing organization and upcoming national event. For our education section, we're pleased to report that Caleb Amara, Jane Lynn Geronimo, Julianne Viernes, and Melissa Takahashi won the World War I History Prizes at the national finals of National History Day. World War I Centennial Commissioner Dr. Libby O'Connell was on hand at the University of Maryland to congratulate these wonderful kids and give them the special awards we sponsored. Caleb, a senior student at Keene High School in Keene, New Hampshire, was awarded the prize for his paper titled Eugene Debs and the Fight for Free Speech. This ties directly into our story today about the First Amendment oppressions that came with the Espionage and Sedition Acts. Debs spent 10 years in prison for his opposition to the war, and Caleb's paper explores the issue. Jane Lynn Geronimo, Julianne Viernes, and Melissa Takahashi are middle schoolers at the Waipahu Intermediate School on Oahu in Hawaii. They created a junior group exhibit called Dada, a major modern art movement. The beginnings of Dada corresponds to the outbreak of World War I. You know, art is often political, and for the Dadaists, the birth of the movement was a protest against imperialist, nationalist, and colonial ambitions, which many of the movement's founders believed were the root cause of the war. These special World War I History Awards are sponsored by the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission and are given in recognition of excellence in study of World War I and its impact nationally, internationally, and of course, as these kids point out, socially. We'd like to congratulate the students for their outstanding work, and we want to thank National History Day for all they do to bring the study of history to life for our kids. You are awesome. And now for our updates from the states. From Texas, we have a follow-up on last week's story about the flooding aboard the USS Texas. The battleship USS Texas One of only two U.S. Navy combat ships remaining intact from World War I had a scare last week. Leaks forced closure of the museum ship as she began to sink and list. Emergency repairs and fast action stopped the flooding. She's watertight once more, and the 103-year-old ship is again welcoming visitors aboard. Learn more by following the link in the podcast notes. This week in our international report, we want to tell you about an exhibit that approaches World War I in a wholly unique way. On view at the Guildhall Art Gallery in London is Echoes Across the Centuries. 
The show was created by artist and set designer Jane Churchill. Her influence can be seen by the huge wooden structure that weaves its way between the rooms, creating a trench system which houses the artwork made by local artists and over 240 students. The show focuses on the human impact of the First World War by combining personal stories from the war with the interpretation of modern-day children. It's totally immersive, totally unique, and very powerful. The sky of the installation is full of planes, and cases of paper moths line the walls, acting as memorials for those who died at the front. Apothecaries' cabinets, tobacco tins, and cooks' matchboxes contain war-torn landscapes in miniature, and the collaborative collages depict scenes from the trenches. See the wonderful images from this exhibit, and learn more about it by following the links in the podcast notes. In our spotlight on the media, the headline reads, An archive of 10,000-cylinder recordings readied for the Spotify era. The University of California, Santa Barbara, recently launched a new website for its Cylinder Audio Archive that features over 10,000-cylinder recordings, all available to download or stream online for free. America, I raise a boy for you. America, you'll find him strong and true. Before the MP3s before CDs, before cassettes, and even before vinyl records. When Thomas Edison first invented the ability to record and play back, it was on cylinders. First made of tin foil, then wax, cylinder recordings, commonly the size and shape of a soda can, were the first commercially produced sound recordings in the decades around the turn of the 20th century. UCSB has digitized a wonderful collection of these, giving us a real insight into what people heard as they listened to the very influential songs and popular music during World War I. This song, The Americans Come, depicts an episode in France in the year 1917, immediately following the arrival of the first contingent of khaki-clad American boys. We've included a link in the podcast notes that leads you directly to that collection so you can take a listen for yourself. I personally own an Edison cylinder player and have a couple of boxes of cylinders, and now I know what to do with them. Hooray for the University of California in Santa Barbara, and thank you. Also this week, in Popular Mechanics, we saw a great discussion of the history of gas and its use in World War I. Their headline reads, The Real Story of the World War I Poison Gas in Wonder Woman. Yeah, she's back. The article looks at the use of gas in the Wonder Woman movie and then compares the film depiction to the actual historical use of the weapon. That aside, what caught our attention was that World War I is being discussed in popular mechanics. That Wonder Woman, much like the video game Battlefield I, is inspiring conversation about World War I among and between people who previously had forgotten the war or didn't know anything about it. Because, after all, it is the war that changed the world. Read the article by visiting Popular Mechanics at the link provided in the podcast notes, but be aware of spoilers if you haven't seen the movie. 
in our articles and posts where we explore the World War I Centennial Commission's rapidly growing website at ww1cc.org. This week in the news section is a story of Captain James E. Miller, one of the first aviators in the U.S. military and the first U.S. aviation casualty of World War I. Captain Miller was recently awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross, more than 99 years after his heroic actions over France in 1918. On the 242nd birthday of the U.S. Army, which was on June 14th, Miller's great-grandson, Byron Derringer, was presented with the Captain's Distinguished Flying Cross. You can read more about his service during the war by following the link in the podcast notes or by visiting www.cc.org news. Forty miles south of Washington, D.C., off of Maryland's Charles County shoreline, near a little town named Nanjamoy. The water-beaten remains of more than 200 ships lie in their final resting place in the shallow waters of the Potomac River's Mallows Bay. According to Samuel Orlando, Chesapeake Bay Regional Coordinator at NOAA, Mallows Bay is the richest marine heritage site in the United States. In addition to being reflective of America's emergence as a naval superpower during World War I, the Ghost Fleet provides the structure for a unique marine ecosystem. Read about how the industrial complex and economy that grew out of World War I led to the fleet's demise by visiting www.cc.org/news. I never knew about this site, but having seen the picture, it's on my list of places to go see on the East Coast the next time I'm there. It looks amazing. In our Write blog, which explores World War I's influence on contemporary writing and scholarship, this week's post is Echoes of Sassoon, a conversation with Maddie Friedman. The post is written by Brian Kastner, co-editor of The Road Ahead, and author of All the Ways We Kill and Die, and the book The Long Walk. Kastner also wrote the foreword for David Christinger's book See Me for Who I Am, which we featured last week. In this post, Kastner interviews award-winning author and journalist Maddie Friedman, who is both Israeli and Canadian. He wrote, and they discuss his memoir, Pumpkin Flowers. As Friedman and Kastner point out, more Canadian soldiers died in the Great War than any other conflict, and its influence can be felt throughout Pumpkin Flowers. This puts Friedman at odds with many contemporary American veteran authors who often reach into other conflicts for comparison when writing about their wars. Vietnam for Iraq, Korea for Afghanistan. Don't miss this fascinating post about how and why World War I would color a Canadian's view of a very different war in the Middle East at www.cc.org slash wwrite. And if World War I's influence on contemporary writing and scholarship is of particular interest to you, sign up for the blog at the same link. That brings us to The Buzz, the centennial of World War I this week in social media, with Catherine Akey. Catherine, what do you have for us this week? Today on The Buzz, we're turning again to some photographs that garnered a lot of attention this past week. We have two I wanted to highlight, and we'll start with one that I've posted before, but the image always seems to be on my mind, and I find I want to share it again and again. 
In it, a man holds up two paddles, each with a thick border surrounding a set of stars. This pattern was devised during World War I for families to display in their windows or on their doors, each star standing in for a son in service in the war. Ike Sims, the man with the kind eyes and the unruly white mustache in the photo, has 11 stars on his two paddles. He is an 87-year-old African-American man beaming with pride as he shows off the proof of his son's service. I haven't had much luck in finding out more about Mr. Sims, a Georgian who may have been born into slavery and who, at the least, saw his America go from a place where his sons could be considered property to a place where they could serve and die under its flag. If anyone can find out more about him and his sons, please let us know. And of course, we wish a belated Happy Father's Day to you all. The second image that proved popular this week was taken on June 14, 1917. We've talked a lot earlier in this episode about the American forces that will arrive in late June to France, and here we have a photo of the 5th Marine Regiment, the very first to land in France. They're all crammed together on the deck of a ship, life jackets on and in matching hats as they undergo a lifeboat drill under the watchful gaze of a sailor. They left New York Harbor on June 13th, and while en route to France, the Marines were kept busy with compulsory shipboard drills, guard mount, inspections, target practice, and duties as ship's lookouts and gun crew members. They arrived 12 days after this photo was taken at Saint-Nazaire with no loss of life and ready to fight. Thank you, Catherine. A good wrap-up for the question, where are the Americans? All of Catherine's stories have links in the podcast notes. And that's World War I Centennial News for this week. Thank you for listening. We want to thank our guests. Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog on his post, Where Are the Americans? Richard Rubin, author, storyteller, and self-proclaimed bon vivant. And Jonathan Bratton, historian. And their segment on the U.S. troops arriving in France. Cortland Jindra, co-director of the managing board for the California World War I Centennial Commission and the project lead on 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Restoration at Victory Memorial Grove in L.A. Catherine Akey, the commission's social media director and also the line producer for the show. And I'm Teo Mayer, your host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a conversation and awareness about World War I. This show is a part of that effort. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago into today's classrooms. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. And of course, we're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. We rely entirely on donations. No government appropriations or taxes are being used. So please, support these programs by giving what you can at www.cc.org donate, all lowercase. Or if you're listening to the show on your smartphone, you can text us a donation of any size. Just text the letters WW1 to the number 41444. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, for their support. The podcast can be found on our website at www.cc.org cn or on iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn. Search for WW1 Centennial News. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at WW1CC, and we're on Facebook at WW1 Centennial. Thanks for joining us. And don't forget to share the stories that you're hearing here about the war that changed the world. 
So long. We rope to stand the Kaiser. Hooray, hooray. In Kaiserland, we take our stand until we can the Kaiser. Let's go, let's go, let's go and can the Kaiser. Let's go, let's go, let's go and can the Kaiser.